Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Raleigh, North Carolina, to discuss managing massive hemoptysis with Dr. Kevin Davidson. I'm Kevin Davidson. I'm a critical care physician and interventional pulmonologist. And I work at Wake Med Health and Hospitals in Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Kevin. Um, today we'll be discussing um, your article that you co-authored entitled Managing Massive Hemoptysis. It was in the CHEST uh, January 2020 issue. And we'll be discussing um, an issue that a lot of uh, clinicians either fear or find very challenging and is very high stakes and time sensitive. So maybe you could start off by telling us why you and your team performed a review on managing massive hemoptysis. Of course, yes. Uh, I share the same concerns. I think this is one of the most um, kind of dire initial presentations and certainly um, causes a lot of um, uh, stress when patients come in with this uh, type of presentation with that of massive hemoptysis. Um, We share an interest in medical education and empowering teams to be prepared to respond to medical emergencies. Uh, And so um, in in my current practice, you know, when I encounter massive hemoptysis, uh, it might be a presenting complaint for a patient who has just presented to the emergency department or developed this, um, you know, really in the course of their hospital stay. Um, But I also um, perform a variety of invasive procedures and uh, bleeding is a you know well-known complication of many of these procedures, and uh, for that reason, you know I, I've sought additional training to to be able to manage this when it does arise. Um, you know, recently in medicine uh, and in pulmonary medicine, there's been a, a push towards uh, minimally invasive procedures and uh, bronchoscopic techniques to try to diagnose. Um, be it lung cancers, other nodules, infiltrates, abnormalities of the lungs, the mediastinum, of the pleura. And even though there's been a desire for minimally invasive procedures, um, there's also been a revolution in medical oncology where oftentimes, you know, larger tissue samples and additional, you know, assays and molecular techniques are required. And so um, pulmonology really sits in the crossroads between these two two camps, trying to provide minimally invasive procedures, but also uh, maximizing, you know, the yield of these uh, biopsies. Uh, And so um, being able to uh, manage the complications of biopsies uh, is certainly important. And then just functioning in an intensive care unit and working as a pulmonologist, we're often called upon uh, when patients uh, present in this fashion. Perfect. That's a great introduction. So for the benefit of our junior colleagues, um, maybe you could tell us what the definition of massive hemoptysis is. In uh, training, maybe 10, 15 years ago, they would go according to a certain volume. But in your article, you say that it actually depends on a physiologic state. That's. Uh, I, I completely agree. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that um, when uh, either patients, families, or even other practitioners try to define a volume of hemoptysis, uh, we're, we're probably not very good at it, um, and that's because, um, you know, as people cough up blood, it's mixed with other things, it's smeared onto a flat surface, and all the while we're concerned about um, the condition worsening. 
you know, we estimate volumes of blood, but it's uh, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, prior definitions did specify a particular, um, you know, amount of uh, milliliters and, and sometimes an amount of milliliters over a particular duration of time, uh, such that over six hours or a day uh, could still, you know, meet a definition. Um, what we found to be more telling and probably a more comprehensive definition uh, meets this um, uh, theory of the, the magnitude of effect, meaning that, you know, for a patient who already has other comorbidities, other limitations, uh, cardiopulmonary reserve, it may not take as much bleeding uh, to cause a very hemodynamically significant uh, amount of hemoptysis or what we would call, you know, massive or life-threatening hemoptysis. Uh, there are also maybe occasionally in, uh, a patient who is able to produce quite a volume of hemoptysis, uh, but they're still awake, uh, preserving their gas exchange and able to expectorate that blood before it clots and impairs any of their gas exchange. You know, in all of these circumstances, um, the responses should still be immediate. Um, and we don't know, you know, if a patient's uh, hemoptysis is going to worsen, if they're going to continue to be able to maintain their airway. And so these definitions of uh, stringent or strict values, both because they're difficult to estimate and because they don't take into account all these other factors, are probably less important than the global uh, clinical context in which you see it. So if you had a patient with life-threatening hemoptysis, uh, what would you say meets the criteria from a pulmonary or cardiac perspective? Right. So anytime I'm worried about their mental status changing, they're having increasing oxygen requirements, um, them uh, developing any degree of hemodynamic instability, uh, and I'm, I'm concerned that the hemoptysis is, is the main factor, uh, I think that meets our criteria for life-threatening hemoptysis. And um, all of the uh, necessary uh, diagnostic and possible uh, therapeutic uh, approaches uh, need to be um, initiated immediately. Great. And then in your paper, in Table 1, you uh, go through a pretty comprehensive list as to the etiology um, of uh, massive hemoptysis, and you've already mentioned the atrogenic causes. What are the other causes that clinicians should be wary of if a patient comes in and says, I've coughed up a teaspoon or two of blood or a bit more than that? What are the major causes that they should be thinking of? Certainly. So this has a lot of variability, both geographically, because around the world, tuberculosis remains a major cause of um, uh, hemoptysis and, and life-threatening or massive hemoptysis in particular. Um, obviously, we're concerned about, um, you know, presentations of malignancies, uh, about, um, you know, worsening uh, pneumonias, about uh, patients who are already on uh, other uh, perhaps antiplatelet or anticoagulant medications, uh, who have other causes of bronchial irritation or infection. Um, and then there can be, you know, chronic causes that can be acutely exacerbated. And probably the, the chief one among them are, are patients with bronchiectasis where there's been longstanding inflammation or perhaps uh, damage to the bronchial tubes um, and uh, the lung parenchyma. And then they're, um, they're predisposed to particular types of organisms, opportunistic infections and uh, recurrent bleeding, both because they have you know, hypertrophied uh, bronchial uh, arterial vasculature, so the uh, the amount of blood flow to these areas is increased, 
but also some of them become uh, colonized or infected with other opportunistic organisms, um, such as aspergillus and other uh, types of uh, fungus and even non-tuberculous uh, mycobacterias. Great. So let's move on to the meat of the, the discussion for today. So if I was a, a critical care physician or the pulmonologist on call and I get a, uh, a, a consult saying I've got a patient with hemoptysis, what is your strategy for evaluating that patient and then managing them? Great. So that's a, that, that's really the, the meat of this kind of article. And uh, the main thing that we're concerned about um, a lot of things need to happen rapidly, and um, in this particular article, we're really addressing uh, massive hemoptysis, uh, not routine, you know, low volume, a patient with bronchitis who's coughing up small amounts. Uh, we're talking about patients who are going to need intensive care unit admission, and I'm worried about their impending cardiovascular collapse and that this is life-threatening. For that matter, an early approach involving many other members of a multidisciplinary team uh, the pulmonologists, the intensive care unit team, uh, interventional radiologists and surgeons. Early involvement of all these possible teams has great merit because many of their services may be needed in these circumstances. And when a patient presents without prior history, without having been recently biopsied or already well-known to us, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. We don't know what the cause of the hemoptysis is. We don't know if there's one particular area where it may be emanating from or perhaps several. And um, one of the early considerations is going to be trying to control their airway to try to limit the spread of bleeding to any other regions that may be unaffected at present. And so we, we refer to this as compartmentalization of the bleed and, and attempts to lateralize the bleed. Um, so early imaging, be it chest x-ray, CT scan, Oftentimes, we want to try to get some initial diagnostics to try to prove where we think the, the bleeding might be coming from to aid our, our decisions. And a patient who's becoming unstable, obviously, uh, decisions about intubation and um, uh, transition onto mechanical ventilation are paramount. Um, but at the same time, we want to make early decisions to try to preserve what remains of healthy lung tissue that is not um, you know, soiled in blood. So if I if I have a high suspicion for the area of bleeding um, that is the culprit, I want to put the bad lung down and turn the patient so their good lung is up to allow gravity to help me to rapidly try to help stabilize and uh, prevent the blood from coming over. Now, from here, there's a lot of other additional techniques which may be beneficial, but we should remember that massive hemophysis is a very um, uh, heterogeneous group. Uh, when a patient presents, we may not immediately know what the exact cause is, what some of their underlying other features are. Are they on anticoagulants? Are they on antiplatelets? Um, you know, have they had other recent procedures? As I said before, is there more than one area of bleeding? And so that's where the decision for either a CT scan or flexible bronchoscopy could come in handy. Um, the value of the, uh, an early bronchoscopy is that we may be able to isolate the side and perhaps the lobe or segment of bleeding. And there are several potential benefits from doing an early bronchoscopy, whereas we might be able to diagnose the cause of bleeding or at least the culprit lesion, clear the airway of other um, large volumes of uh, either blood or clot uh, to um, preserve gas exchange. 
uh, potentially provide other adjunct therapies, such as ice saline lavage or installation of other medications, such as epinephrine, to try to exert a vasoconstrictive effect. Um, but really, um, you know, flexible bronchoscopy aids us in helping prevent the bleeding from spilling over to other areas. And to that end, um, other techniques, such as placement of bronchial blockers um, to the side of bleeding or helping direct a selective um, intubation to either main stem could be very beneficial. Uh, there's photos in our paper demonstrating um, what some of these uh, circumstances might look like and, and why a flexible bronchoscopy early on could be of high benefit. Now, it is true that there are causes of bleeding which may not be diagnosed readily with bronchoscopy, and uh, more distal sources of bleeding uh, will uh, perhaps be better evaluated with a CT scan. When we're talking about life-threatening homopsis, a lot of decisions need to be made uh, very early on, and we're concerned about um, trying to stabilize the airway, prevent any further uh, impairments of gas exchange, and many of these things need to be um, uh, performed uh, in rapid sequence. And so individual patient characteristics, availability of some of these procedures at your facility, all of them are going to come into play in terms of the exact sequence of, of these events. Um, and then once we have local control or we have some amount of stability, um, we're hoping to um, provide more um, definitive long-term control. And so um, depending on you know, the, the speed of bleeding, the stability of the patient, other things may still be necessary. Uh, interventional of um, uh, radiologists uh, to perform a bronchial artery embolization. Uh, this is a procedure that has a very good safety profile with a very high uh, initial control rate of bleeding. Uh, might be of high benefit. Um, you know, potentially transitions from just a routine flexible bronchoscopy to a rigid bronchoscopy might be beneficial in select patients. This is another uh, technology that allows very definitive control of airway bleeding um, and potentially other adjunct therapies to help control what could be a proximal source of bleed, uh, perhaps from tumor or some visible um, uh, bleeding uh, airway, uh, or even considerations uh, for surgery. So after bronchial artery embolization, there are other methods, and surgery still has a very strong uh, uh, role in the control of massive homopsis, in particular when other methods have failed. Um, there may be certain forms of massive homopsis, such as mycetomas or, or fungus balls, um, which are associated with a very high rate of re-bleeding when controlled with other methods, and surgery may offer them better control uh, when it's performed uh, for these particular causes of bleeding. So, Kevin, in Table 2, you've got a pretty um, comprehensive uh, checklist, and I'm hoping that we can just go through it uh, step point by point to, to illustrate why you chose certain uh, words, because I think it's really important. So, your first one, you say you should have an intubation tray with endotracheal tubes, including sizes greater than 8.5. Why is that so important? Right. So, um, when patients are intubated and are undergoing flexible bronchoscopy, we really need to remember that the working channel size on bronchoscopes uh, really can empower us or limit us in terms of evacuation of blood from the airway. Uh, we talk about bronchoscopes as being standard diagnostic size, and while while they do vary uh, very frequently, their working channel is about two millimeters in diameter. And then uh, a larger therapeutic size, and these would typically have a larger working channel, 
sometimes 2.6 or 2.8 millimeters. So having a larger working channel uh, is very important when we're talking about massive hemolysis because the laws that govern the flow of fluid through tubes um, are directly proportional to the force power of the radius. And so once uh, there's blood or any organized clot within the airway, having a larger bronchoscope is very important to be able to, to manage this bleeding. And so patients intubated with smaller tubes may not permit um, the larger uh, therapeutic bronchoscope uh, while also ventilating the patient. Additionally, if a patient needs a bronchial blocker to be placed, go axially through an um, endotracheal tube and also have a flexible bronchoscope. There's oftentimes just not enough space in the smaller endotracheal tube. And so uh, although they're not routinely used um, in other settings, having a larger endotracheal tube, 8.5 or 9.0 millimeters in diameter, and that's the inner diameter, uh, would be uh, very helpful in any uh, emergency kit for responding to massive hemoptysis. Great. So a bigger tube so that you can get more oxygen to the patient, you can have a bigger scope, and you can do other uh, modalities of treatment. So, And then you mentioned having on your tray both the therapeutic uh, bronchoscope, a diagnostic scope, and a pediatric flexible scope. Explain why you would have all three in your emergency massive hemoptysis toolkit. It's most helpful to be prepared and have some of these things available. Um, the, the, the pediatric size um, bronchoscope is really of most benefit when trying to place a bronchial blocker through a smaller endotracheal tube um, if the patient's not stable to have a tube exchange. Uh, additionally, uh, we make a strong argument against the use of dual lumen uh, endotracheal tubes, um, in particular because even though they allow lung isolation, um, their inner diameters are, are quite limited in their um, size. And so if there is massive hypothesis, evacuation of blood from the airways and certainly classes can be limited, and it, it, it will limit the passage of any size bronchoscope through most dual lumen tubes. Great. And then in your checklist, you mentioned the use of bronchial blockers. This is a question a uh, ICU physician or pulmonologist may ask. Should I place a bronchial blocker, or should I right main stem or le left main stem uh, the endotracheal tube? How do you decide? Right. No, that's an excellent question. Um, I think both can be options in times of absolute emergency. Um, you know, we would uh, oftentimes prefer that if if the the bleeding is coming from the right side, um, the um, the anatomy of the longer left main stem bronchus easily allows for a left-sided selective main stem intubation uh, to be able to uh, preserve gas exchange to the left side and exclude any bleeding occurring on the right. Um, and so that, that would be um, the fastest initial uh, treatment for right-sided massive hemoptysis with an endotracheal tube in place. However, if, if there's bleeding coming from the left side, one of the challenges with a right-sided uh, selective intubation is that the right upper lobe takeoff um, oftentimes occurs after just a limited segment uh, of the right main stem bronchus, and, and it can easily be um, obstructed um, by the uh, cuff balloon on the endotracheal tube. Uh, it's in this instance uh, where uh, leaving the endotracheal tube in standard position but advancing a left-sided bronchial blocker could be of uh, additional benefit. Um, there are additional uh, methods for training and for practice of this technique, in particular, that are uh, very easy with um, uh, advent of 3D printed uh, airways, uh, where um, this 
uh, you know, selective intubation and placement of bronchial blockers with it, with or without lasso technique, uh, can be practiced in a, a, a educational setting. Great. And then part of your step three, you say bronchial, a bronchial blocker, and then ice cold saline. So uh, there's a lot of debates, or the, at least in the institutions that I've practiced in, where should I use ice cold saline? Should I use epinephrine? What would your recommendation be? Right. So in preparation for this paper, we reviewed the available research on both techniques, and uh, the publications are, are quite limited. Um, ice saline has been used uh, for decades, and at times at very high volumes in the past. Um, this is thought to work mostly through a vasoconstrictive effect, um, and we do use ice saline uh, oftentimes um, uh, in uh, bleeding that's already happened post-bronchoscopic uh, uh, biopsy. Uh, when we're already wedged within a particular uh, segment and waiting for uh, bleeding to tamponade. Um, one of the limitations of, of epinephrine is that uh, although it also works through a local vasoconstrictive effect, uh, we have some concern about um, the risk of arrhythmia uh, and um, the volumes of epinephrine that are recommended vary widely in the literature, uh, but typically these are preparations where only one or two milliliters of medication is recommended to be administrated. And in our experience, we think that uh, a single one or two milliliters of, of any medication in, in the setting of rapid hemolysis is likely to be just rapidly carried away by uh, rapid bleeding and, and may not even uh, stay around long enough to exert its effect in the target area of bleeding. So it sounds like you would favor ice cold saline, especially in those patients with arrhythmias or coronary uh, disease. Your your fourth point is prompt transfer to the ICU, which I think is uh, pretty obvious. But sometimes patients get left on the floor, um, and uh, you also said to administer a large volume IV line to ensure volume resuscitation. Uh, maybe you want to comment um, as to any pitfalls you've seen in the past, uh, or um, uh, any advice to clinicians. Right. Well, I think one of the risks here is uh, the risk for recurrent bleed, um, because the circumstance uh, that you might be detailing is one in which a patient presented with massive hemolysis, uh, but got good early definitive treatment uh, and now remains in the hospital, but within that initial procedural period where they may look good and bleeding seems to have ceased. Uh, but we should remember that um, the, uh, the bleed may only be temporized by a relatively small clot, and the rate of rebleed, depending on the underlying cause of bleeding, may be um, significantly high. And so, um, you know, intensive care unit monitoring for some of these uh, patients uh, is certainly warranted. And while there is a lot of variability depending on the cause of their bleeding, uh, having things in place to be able to um, rapidly treat them is paramount. Great. And then, into, and then you also mentioned uh, typing and screening, which sometimes people forget to check. Uh, um, when someone's bleeding, it, it makes sense to check their platelets and INR and to screen them. Um, you mentioned the chest X-ray and CAT scan. Um, I, I found very interesting in your paper that you had said that uh, chest X-ray sometimes only determines the size of bleeding about 40%. So would you routinely obtain a CAT scan, and, and how would you determine when to get your CAT scan? Right. So this is one of the big areas of controversy in uh, management of uh, massive hemoptysis. Um, uh, we agree that uh, ideally we would have as much information as we can, uh, but in a, a setting where a patient um, uh, has a life-threatening condition, 
initial decisions about whether the patient's stable enough for transfer to the CAT scanner or whether or not we should proceed directly to bronchoscopy. Uh, this is an area of ongoing uh, controversy. Um, you know, ideally, both of them have their merits, and the combination of the two is most likely to yield a diagnosis of where the bleeding is coming from and, and hint at what the underlying cause is. Um, you know, certainly um, routine chest X-ray very fast is going to happen upon immediate um, presentation to the emergency department and may give us the initial information about um, the size of bleed or potentially what the etiology is. Um, you know, um, CT scanner, uh, also very beneficial and might give us additional information about, you know, whether or not there's um, a particular lung mass, uh, bronchiectasis, uh, a mycetoma, uh, you know, pulmonary embolus, um, you know, other um, uh, malformations of uh, major vessels. Uh, so all of these things are, are, are highly valuable and um, individual characteristics of the patient and availability of these is going to dictate uh, which one takes precedence. Great. And then the, the last two points that you mentioned are probably in the purview of the interventional pulmonologist, specifically cryotherapy, uh, electrocautery, or argon. Maybe you could comment on that uh, for the benefit of those who haven't had the um, exposure. Certainly. So um, there's a lot of other available techniques that may be beneficial. Um, you know, when it comes to proximal bleeding tumors, um, some of the ablative technologies um, could be very helpful. Um, argon plasma coagulation, or APC, can be performed through a flexible bronchoscope uh, or rigid scope um, and uh, allows uh, a, a more superficial uh, form of ablation of airway tumors to provide some hemostasis. Um, other forms of cautery are also available. Interestingly, uh, one of the other um, uh, benefits of these uh, technologies is actually uh, the cryoprobe uh, in which at the resolution phase of bleeding, uh, there may be large blood clots within the airways which are um, impairing um, ventilation and gas exchange, uh, but are too uh, large to suction out um, with even a therapeutic bronchoscope. And so these can be rapidly cryo-extracted um, by freezing to the clot and then uh, withdrawing um, uh, what are oftentimes large casts from the airways. So even in the resolution phase of illness, uh, there may be additional procedures that are needed uh, to really um, uh, restore uh, the airways um, from massive bleeding. Yeah, and I would say definitely during my... Um IP rotation as a pulmonary fellow, one of the more uh, beneficial aspects or satisfying was the, the using the cryoprobe to pull out the whole cast. That, that's rather impressive. Um, Kevin, I want to turn your attention to um, common pitfalls or errors that you've noted in, mass, in managing massive hemoptysis, um, be it from uh, clinicians on the floor or pulmonologists, uh, other IP physicians, intervention radiologists, cardiothoracic surgeons. Maybe you could just... Uh, give a list or share some of your personal experiences as to um, things that could have been done better or uh, errors that people commonly make um, that need to be addressed and people need to be cognizant of? No, certainly. Um, so, um, you know, one of the um, one of the early things I would mention is, um, is, is just to reiterate early involvement of a multidisciplinary team. Um, uh, many of these individual teams have um, have uh, the ability to uh, manage uh, hemoptysis and oftentimes definitively 
Um, but it's these cases that need additional steps that uh, any delay is um, is uh, not serving to the patients. And so um, even if a, a, there's a plan in place, um, involvement of these other teams to be able to mobilize either um, bronchial artery embolization or potentially uh, decisions to get a surgery would be most helpful. Um, you know, I, I would also say that in, in cases of mass hypnosis, I've also seen um, a desire um, to consider a double lumen tube uh, intubation. And, and as was discussed earlier, these are just um, pretty obsolete in the management of a true massive bleed. And that's because uh, once there's uh, that much blood within the airways, they do not permit the uh, routine use of a, a bronchoscope uh, down either lumen just because the sizes are so small. And uh, it's very challenging to keep the airways clear uh, once there's significant bleeding. Um, additionally, uh, they can involve additional time to um, to place correctly. Uh, they can migrate, and uh, we would prefer to instead intubate with a larger size endotracheal tube, uh, which would permit um, you know a larger therapeutic bronchoscope and perhaps a, a coaxial placement of a bronchial blocker as well. Um, Kevin, as we wind up this podcast, um, um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you and, again, a lot of insights. I think we're very fortunate to have your expertise as an interventional pulmonologist. Uh, I just want to see, was there anything that we haven't covered in this podcast that you thought our audience should know um, or any uh, last-minute insights or um, advice to uh, people uh, planning to pursue a career in interventional pulmonology? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, one of the other things that, that we touched on, because um, there's there's a lot of literature on massive hypnosis, and it's limited for a variety of reasons. There's um, there's oftentimes small sample sizes. There's um, a variety of other uh, techniques in highly mixed populations, and there's a lot of case report data on uh, other things that have been used um, to control uh, bleeding. You know, one of the other things we're interested in are um, the value of other adjuncts, um, be them IV medications, uh, bronchoscopic installations, or even nebulized medications uh, that may be helpful uh, in massive hemoptysis. Uh, and in our paper, um, uh, there's a brief discussion of uh, trans uh, transoxamic acid, um, uh, which has shown some um, uh, recent uh, uh, positive data uh, to help with uh, resolution of hemoptysis. Uh, but in addition to this, there's other things that have been used, although not as widely studied, uh, such as uh, recombinant activated factor seven uh, and a variety of other, um, you know, uh, medications and products, biocompatible thrombin fibrin glues. Um, you know, additional study on all these are going to help uh, determine uh, where their true role is in uh, massive hemoptysis. And, um, you know, uh, I think in the future we'll see um, potential uh, additional medications that uh, can also help in our response to these um, emergencies. Um, as for those who are interested in interventional pulmonology, um, I think it's a, uh, an excellent calling. And, um, you know, I very much do enjoy my time uh, both doing procedures, but also in the intensive care unit and, and also in a, in a pulmonary clinic. So I really feel like I get to um, mix um, uh, several of my uh, great interests uh, and provide a good service to my patients. Oh, that's awesome. I just want to go back to uh, the factor seven because um, we, we had a patient who a number of issues arose. One was the cost. Um, the other was the fact that um, one patient, I think, uh, had a lot of clot that formed after they used it. 
Um, but in other patients, it's worked really, really well, and the bleeding stopped. What has your experience with Factor Seven been? Uh, so personally, I've only been involved in one case in, it was, in which it was used in a nebulized fashion in terms of uh, management of uh, hemoptysis. Um, you know, I think the majority of the data for um, for uh, activated factor seven actually comes from pediatric literature, um, and uh, in these cases, I think they were typically uh, hemoptysis cases from diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And, and as you might expect, I mean, there's a desire for a treatment that's going to um, to target the diffuse nature of that entity uh, because there's no local therapy that's going to ablate just a single bleeding segment or uh, be able to provide local control when it is, in fact, diffuse hemorrhage. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's easy to understand why there's a desire to give a, a treatment that may um, help globally when when the lung, lung segments are bleeding. Um, you know, obviously this is balanced with a concern for thrombosis and um, you know either uh, coronary events or stroke, DVT, and otherwise. Uh, and that's why additional research is still needed um, just to define what the true safety profile is and and what the benefit is. Uh, you know, interestingly, uh, this is another medication that's been described um, not unlike transoxamic acid, where there's um, some limited data for use both uh, in a nebulized fashion as a bronchoscopic installation um, or intravenous uh, systemic use. And, um, you know, um, that's why I had mentioned that, you know, the future role and how all these medications may be of most benefit, um, you know, uh, when they should be considered uh, still needs further study. Perfect. Well, uh, Kevin, it's an absolute pleasure to chatting with you, and thank you for taking the time to speak to our audience at the ATS Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I've learned a great deal, and I've really enjoyed reading your paper. Um, I'll definitely encourage our audience to go and read the CHEST January 2020 um, article that you and your team have put together. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. A big thank you to Dr. Kevin Davidson, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.